Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We come this morning to the final chapter of this great letter, this letter that we have been studying together almost every Sunday since last January. And at this point, you will remember, or at least I hope you will remember, that from the very beginning of this letter, the author has been encouraging and exhorting the Hebrews, and, and through them, us. He, he has been exhorting us to, to stand firm and to hold fast, to, to press on in the faith. You see, the Hebrews who first received this letter were suffering. They were, they were suffering for their faith. The author tells us that they had not yet resisted to the point of shedding their blood, but they were being slandered, and, and some of them had even had their property taken. Others had even been imprisoned, and there was no relief in sight. In fact, it only seemed that things were going to continue to get worse. And so some of them were beginning to wonder if they had made a mistake, if it had been a mistake to confess Jesus as Lord, if it had been a mistake to, to commit to following after him. And it was this very question that the author wrote this letter to answer. We don't know exactly who the author was, but it is clear that the Hebrews knew him. They, they knew him to be their pastor. Their pastor separated from them for, for one reason or another, but he was their pastor. And this is his pastoral letter to them. And he begins this pastoral letter by reminding them that he is but an under-shepherd that Jesus is the true shepherd, and that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the creator of all things. And it is Jesus who, who came in human flesh to, to die for our sins, but then who also rose again and now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He the author says, is the heir of all things. He is the ruler of the world to come. He is the one who has defeated death. He is the one who has, who has dealt for all time with the guilt of our sins by the sacrifice of himself. He is the one who has given us an inheritance in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And therefore, the author says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We must, he says, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must not harden our hearts when we hear his voice, but we must instead exhort one another to believe. We must exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. We must strive to enter into his Rest. We must draw near to the throne of grace with the full assurance of faith. We must not become sluggish, but must be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. We must run with endurance the race that has been marked out for us, that race of faith. We must follow in the footsteps 
of that great cloud of witnesses who went before us and who were all commended for their faith and their faithfulness. This is the author's theme. That Jesus is the great high priest. That he is the ruler of the age to come. That he is the only redeemer of God's elect. And therefore we must cling to him as our only hope. We must press on in the faith. For to forsake him is to forsake salvation. We must not be like foolish Esau who sold his inheritance for a single meal. How foolish would it be for these Hebrews to to leave Jesus to escape a momentary trial and leave behind their eternal inheritance in the age to come. No, the author says, we must run with endurance the race that has been set before us. We must run with endurance the race of faith. Because Jesus is the Christ, the great high priest. He is our salvation. And there is hope in no one else. But what does it mean to run this race? What does it mean to to press on in the footsteps of faith? That is the question that the author begins to address with some specificity here in the 13th chapter. Here in the 13th chapter, he will begin to to show us with a series of, of bullet point exhortations what it means to have faith in Jesus. You see, faith is, is not simply professing to believe a few doctrines. Faith is, is not simply trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Faith is receiving Jesus as he is revealed to us in the Gospels. It is receiving him as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. It is walking in obedience to his commands. And so let us turn now to God's word to hear what it is that faith looks like for those who live in this present age. Pray with me that God would open our eyes to to see the truth this morning and to hear his voice and to receive it with faith and love. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you this morning humbly asking that you would indeed open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, that we would hear your voice and receive it, that we would hear your truth and love it, and that we would submit our lives to it, bringing forth its fruit to the praise of your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. This is the very word of God. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. 
Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said, in these verses, we have a a series of bullet point exhortations. It's a, a series of exhortations that actually began the last two verses of chapter 12, verses which I read, verses which, which Sam talked about last Sunday. And in these verses, he is, he is beginning to, to unpack for us what it means in detail to walk in the footsteps of faith. He, he is showing us what faith looks like. He's telling us that, that faith responds to God with, with grateful worship and it responds to our brothers with love. Faith shows hospitality to strangers. Faith remembers those who are in prison and, and mistreated. Faith honors marriage and is content with its possessions. These are the marks of faith. And in this morning, I want us to take those, those first three marks that he talks about here in chapter 13, those, those expressions of faith as love for brothers as love for strangers, and as love for those in prison. So let's begin with the love for brothers. Jesus said that his disciples would be known by the love that they show to one another. People would know that, that, that these are his disciples because the love that they show for one another is a spiritual love. It is a supernatural love. The defining mark of any Christian fellowship, the defining mark of any Christian community, any Christian congregation is to be love. And we know that it doesn't always work out that way. We are a fallen people, and, and we comprise fallen communities. We fall short of the glory that God intends for us. His work in us is, is not yet complete. And yet this is always the goal, that we would be a people known for our love. And the love that we have for one another is a brotherly love. This is a word that gets used throughout the New Testament. Paul refers to it in Romans chapter 12 when he says that we are to love one another with a brotherly affection. And when writing to the Thessalonians, he, he says that they have, no one to, they have no need for anyone to teach them about brotherly love because God himself has taught them to love one another. Peter also uses this language saying that that we have purified our souls by our obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Therefore, he says, let us love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Brotherly love is the the goal of our redemption and and our salvation. It is the life that we are called to in Christ. It is the life that we are empowered for by the Spirit. Jesus' disciples are to be known for the brotherly love that they show to one another. I want you to, to know 
how shocking that would have sounded to those in the first century. We are, we are so used to the language today. We are so used to, to hearing Christians refer to each other as brother this or, or sister that. We are, we are so used to the idea that, that we love each other with brotherly affection that it is no longer surprising. But in the first century, it was considered absurd. Many poets of the, uh, many non-Christian poets of the first and second century ridiculed the Christians for committing to love one another in this way. In their mind, it was, it was simply preposterous that anyone would commit themselves to, to loving someone outside of their immediate family as a member of the family. And the reason that it sounded crazy to those who were outside the church that that we would seek to love everyone in this way is because brotherly love is an extreme love. We are committed to family in a way that we are not committed to, to anyone else. We will stick by a brother longer than we will stick by anyone else. We will bear more for a brother than we will bear for anyone else. We know this to be true. Our families don't always live up to it, but there is something in us that loves a brother deeply and closely. And that love presents itself in a number of ways. It it presents itself in protection. We seek to protect our brothers. We seek to protect them even at great cost to ourselves. If someone comes at our sister, if someone comes at our our brother, we will stand with them and fight. We will offer them refuge. But not only does it present itself in protection, it presents itself in, in provision as well. We will seek to make sure that the needs of our brothers and sisters are met. We will we will seek to make sure that they have no want, that all that they need is supplied. And so it presents itself in in protection, it presents itself in in provision, and it presents itself in partnership. When we are brothers with someone, we are pursuing a goal together. We stand shoulder to shoulder, not as competitors, but in, in cooperation, pursuing success. So that brothers stand together, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Their their relationship is is not marked by envy and resentment, but delight in the other's success. A brother does not seek to use, but to, to serve. He does not seek to take, but to give. Brotherly love is truly an extraordinary and, and costly love. And therefore, to commit to love someone outside of your family in this way would would be considered absurd by many in the world. It's something that should be undertaken only in the the rarest of circumstances. Maybe you might have one friend who you love like a brother. But to commit to loving every Christian in this way seemed beyond the pale of reason. So where did the early church get this idea that they were to love one another with brotherly affection? You're not going to be surprised to know that the idea came from Jesus himself. You may remember the the story recorded for us in in Mark chapter 3. Jesus was was in a synagogue teaching and his his own literal flesh and blood mother and brothers came to, to claim him. They were worried that he was working too hard, working himself to death. 
And when they came to get him, those who were in the synagogue said to to Jesus, "Your, your mother and your brother are outside. But Jesus looked at those who were sitting before him. And he said, these are my mother and my brother. Anyone who does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, or my mother. Jesus said that those who do the will of God, those who who honor me as king, they are my family. It's something that the author of Hebrews himself reflected on earlier in this letter when he said that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And in Christ, we are family. And so the early church knew that they had an obligation To love one another like family. And we see them doing this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we have this grand description of the the church as, as they seek to love one another. And they seek to care for one another's needs. And we're told that they were even making great sacrifices so that no need would go unmet. As they shared everything with with everyone and, and met any need that came up. Such love was the defining characteristic of the early church, and it is to continue to be the defining characteristic of every Christian community. Because such love for your brothers, such love for your sisters in Christ, such love is a principal expression of faith. But if such love is an expression of faith. If faith expresses itself in such love, what is it that that keeps us, or, or what is it that at least hinders us from loving one another in this way? Again, the answer is not surprising. It is the, the selfishness of sin that would keep us from loving one another with this brotherly affection. I want my own kingdom. I want my will to be done. I want to be served. And loving someone else as a brother puts all of that at risk. If I serve the other, I might not have enough for myself. If I serve the other, they might not serve me. It is our selfish ambition. It is our selfish interests that keep us from loving one another with brotherly affection. And so when we put it this way, when we we begin to see that it is the selfishness of sin that, that makes loving this way difficult, that makes loving this way almost impossible for us in our sinful condition, we begin to see that truly such love is an expression of faith. In order to love this way, We must believe. We must believe in Jesus. And we must believe in God the Father. We must believe that when God is God and when Jesus sits upon the throne, that that is the best of all possible worlds. The world tells us, our own heart tells us, that best is when we sit upon the throne. That when our will is done, When we are the king of the kingdom. But such thoughts are are deluded. We have been deceived. 
Faith knows that God is God and that it is good that he is God. Faith knows that Jesus is king and that it is good to be his servant. We struggle to see this sometimes because the world in which we live is so broken. But we must remember that the brokenness of this world is not because God is king, but because we are rebels. The world that God created was good, even very good. It was our rebellion. It was our treason that brought sin and death and destruction and futility into the world. It is not God's rule that is the problem. It is God's rule that is our hope. For it is the reestablishment of God's reign through Jesus Christ that will one day put the world right. And that is our hope, that we serve a king who will put all things right. We serve a king who will make all things new. And because we serve such a king, we can serve him boldly. We can serve him with confidence knowing that his resurrection from the dead is but a foretaste of the renewal of all things yet to come. And so by faith we are freed from the the shackles of selfish ambition. By faith we are freed from the the, the self-interest that that keeps us from, from reaching out in risky ways to our brothers. We are free to truly love. And so if you struggle to love your fellow believers as brothers and sisters in Christ, the answer is not simply to try a little harder. The answer is to set that your eyes on Jesus. To set your eyes on the one who now sits at the right hand of the Father on high. To remember that he is the king and that that is the best of all possible news. He is the king who is putting all things right. He is the king who is making all things new. And therefore we are free. We are free to serve him. We are free to love our brothers and sisters well. For there is nothing in this world that can thwart his purposes or that can undo the good that he has promised to all who love him. You see, there is no actual risk in loving others well, because all that we have is from him. And as it flows through us to others, the blessings simply multiply. He lacks no provision, and those who serve him will lack no good Therefore, let us love our brothers boldly. I know you may be discouraged by this charge because you see all the ways that you are falling short. And there is a place for that. There there is a place for examining ourselves and, and, and recognizing our failures and resolving to do better. But I want you to hear me say this morning, That this is a place where I can already see the Spirit at work in the lives of our people. 
I often hear people lament that the, the church today is nothing like the church that we see in Acts 2 or nothing like the church that we, we see in Acts 4. The church today simply doesn't love that way. I want to tell a different story. I want to tell the story of churches like Trinity because I see you loving in this way. I see us coming alongside one another, making sure that no need goes unmet. I see you making sacrifices in order to provide for the other. I've seen you do it during this pandemic. I've seen you do it before the pandemic. And I am confident that I will see you continue to do it as you continue to run the race that has been set before you, as you continue to walk in the footsteps of faith. So this, this is first. Faith expresses itself in brotherly love for our fellow believers. But the love that is produced by faith doesn't stop there. The second thing that he tells us is that faith expresses itself also in a love of strangers. It, it expresses itself in hospitality. Now there is some debate as to who these strangers are. There are, are some who, who want to who su suggest that these strangers are, are fellow Christians who are simply unknown to the Hebrews. Hospitality is showing love to, to Christians from other communities, from, from other groups. Maybe a, a traveling teacher or a missionary. Maybe a refugee who is fleeing persecution. And of course, the strangers must include our, our fellow Christians, those, those Christians who we do not yet know. But I want you to understand that we cannot limit our obligation to love strangers simply to other Christians. We can't do that because it's not what the scriptures teach. The New Testament obligation of, of hospitality is rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in the Old Testament call to, to love the stranger. And the stranger in the Old Testament is, is not an Israelite you don't know. It's not a member of the covenant community from, from a different tribe. The stranger in your midst is someone from outside the covenant community. And therefore, we understand that the call to love the stranger is a call to love those who are outside of the covenant community. Yes, we are called to, to love Christians we do not know because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But more than that, we are called to love strangers. Those whom we simply do not know, whether they be believers or not. Such hospitality would entail giving food and, and lodging for the night and possibly even provisions for the next leg of a, of a stranger's journey. And such hospitality was needed in the first century because traveling was, was difficult and it was, it was dangerous. And we, we needed places to stay. People needed a, a place of, of refuge when they arrived in a, a new city. We see examples of such hospitality in the Old Testament. When the, the three men came to Abraham, he, he received them and he provided them with a meal. Lot does the same thing with the two angels who, who show up in Sodom. This was hospitality and it was generally regarded as a, as a good thing. It was regarded as a, a virtue by all. But like so many virtues in the ancient world, it was something that had been twisted by the world. Hospitality had become a way to, to sort of earn favors from those who were able to pay you back. 
And so hospitality had become something that you showed to those who were worthy, those who were in a position to repay. But the hospitality that we are called to show is a different hospitality, is a, a pure hospitality. It is a love for strangers that does not expect a return. Think of Jesus' parable of the, the banquet when he says to invite those who cannot pay you back. That is the Christian hospitality. It is service that we do to the stranger because they live in the king's kingdom. They live under the king's domain and the king would have us serve them well. We serve for the king's sake. And I think that's what the author is getting at when he says that thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It's obviously an allusion to some of those Old Testament stories that we see. Abraham entertaining angels, Lot entertaining angels. But I don't think his point is, is simply that if we will show hospitality to strangers, maybe eventually we'll get to see an angel. That's not what he is getting at. But rather he is saying that when we show hospitality, we show hospitality to servants of the king. Angels are, are his ministers. And when we show hospitality to strangers, we are doing it in the service of our king. So what does it mean for us to show hospitality today? It's a hard question. It's a hard question to give a, a detailed answer to. It's, it's hard par partly because it's unclear. It's, it's, it's hard to know exactly what it is that we ought to do in our, our present circumstances. But it's also hard because the things that we are called to do are difficult. They are costly. They are risky. We're not quite sure what we want to commit ourselves to. So what is this hospitality and how do we show it? Well, just like in the first century, it will include opening our homes to, to traveling Christians. Sarah and I had the opportunity to do this not too long ago. There was a, a member of another PCA church in another town who had to be in, in Cleveland for the week as, his, as her daughter took a class at, at Lee. And so we were able to open our home and to, to let them stay with us for a few days. It was one easy way to show hospitality. Another way that we might love the, the stranger is through foster care. It's a way to open our homes to those who we do not know, to give those who need a home a home, to give those who are most vulnerable a, a place of, of refuge. I know of some of you who have opened your home to, to single moms, that they, that they might have a place of safety to, to uh, nurture their, the child still in their womb. I know others of you have, who have opened your home to, to young men who are trying to find work and to save enough money to get a place of their own. How is it that we might use our homes? That's what hospitality is. How is it that we might use our homes to love the stranger. I don't know all the answers, but I know that the answers are risky and I know that the answers are costly. But I know that this is what we are called to because as servants of the king, we are called not only to love one another, but we are called to love the stranger. And so wherever you are this morning, let me challenge you not to, to, to see the, the final picture and, and lament that you are so far from being there. 
But let me challenge you to simply try to discern the first step. Figure out where you are and what it would mean to take one step towards becoming more hospitable. For Sarah and I, we we hope that that will be a a form of of foster care. We hope to open our home to to children who, who need a place of refuge for a short time. It's a scary step. It's a, it's a challenging step, but it's a step that we hope to take. And I challenge you to figure out what your first step will be. How is it that you can use the resources that the Lord has placed at your disposal to love the stranger? But not only are we to love our brothers, not only are we to love the stranger, but we are to have a particular concern for those who are at risk, those who are mistreated, those even who are imprisoned. I haven't left myself much time, and I want to just briefly comment on this third expression of faith, this, this love for those who are at risk, those who are mistreated, those who are oppressed and in, imprisoned. Because throughout the scriptures again, the call is to have a special eye for those who are most at risk. Yes, this, this includes Christians who are being in prison. This includes Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. But I am convinced that we are to have a concern for all of those in our community who are mistreated. Now again, I, I cannot say in detail what this will mean for you. I, I cannot say specifically how it is that you will reach out to the marginalized, how you will reach out to those who are at risk. But I want to suggest to you at least one way. One way that we can love those who are imprisoned. One way that we can love those who are mistreated. Of course, we can engage in prison ministry, as so many in our church already do, using Kairos or using one of the other prison ministries sponsored by the PCA. But let me suggest to you another way to to come alongside those who are mistreated is to stand against racism and discrimination in our culture. This week I I read a few accounts of of yet another situation where an unarmed black man was killed simply for being black. It is a narrative that has repeated itself in our culture time and time again. I don't know all the details, and I I know some of you may be already uh, drafting the email in your mind, explaining to me how I have misunderstood. And I am sure that there are some details that, that I do not know. But I also know that in this, in our present culture, There is still a a strong racism that that leads to strong prejudice and strong discrimination. And we as Christians must stand against such mistreatment. We must stand with the oppressed. We must speak out against the oppression. And where we are able, we must do something about it. For as Christians... We must not only love one another, we must not only love the stranger, but we must have a special concern for those who are most at risk, for those who have no voice of their own, for those who have no resources to protect themselves or to seek redress for their mistreatment. As servants of the king, we must be ministers of his justice, and we must be ambassadors of his peace. 
For his kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness and peace. And we do not serve him well, where we let justice and peace erode or fall to the wayside. May we be people, people of faith, people whose faith expresses itself in love, because we know a gracious king, because we serve a gracious king. And because we know that one day his kingdom will be established. And until that day, we seek to make the blessings of that kingdom known as far as we are able. With the resources that he has placed at our disposal. Such love is always costly. Such love is always risky. But may we be people of such love. Because we serve an all-loving, all-powerful king. You see, ultimately, if we serve him, there is no risk. Because the one who loses his life in his service saves it. The one who loses his life gains life eternal. For the one who lives for Christ, for that one to die is gain. Therefore, we can say, even as the author says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I am free to love because the Lord is my king. And because he is a good king, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that he now sits upon the throne. And we thank you that we have been called into his service. Father, may you strengthen us to walk boldly in the footsteps of faith as we seek to love one another, as we seek to love the stranger, and as we seek to love those who are most at risk in our community. Father, strengthen us for this good work, we pray the glory of your own name and the good of your church. Amen.